the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Lots of exciting things going on in the arena of science. Uh, Most recently, of course, the the big announcement of the successful landing of Curiosity um, on the planet of Mars and the amazing photographs it has begun to send back. And no doubt this is going to do much in terms of adding to our understanding of planets and the cosmos and so forth. Uh, More recently, uh, interesting confirmation of uh, Peter Higgs' so-called God particle. He first came up with the concept back in 1964, and recently our friends up at Cal Berkeley have given some impetus to the idea that such a thing exists. So much going on in this arena, and as much as some Christians kind of shy away from the notion of science with the feeling that it kind of gets in the way of the truth of Scripture, my next guest, in fact, would suggest that there's much about science that confirms what we read in Scripture. Um his CV, if I if I detail it all here, we wouldn't have enough time on the program. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He is the president and founder of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author of books such as The Fingerprint of God, The Genesis Question, The Creator, and The Cosmos. His newest book, an interesting title, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, while the oldest book in the Bible answers today's scientific questions. And Dr. Hugh Ross, I'd like to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Hugh, first, if we can, just kind of your, your thoughts on some of these uh, more recent news developments. Of course, your background as an astrophysicist, I would imagine you're, you've got uh, great interest in following what's been going on, for example, with the recent landing of that Mars rover uh, just last week. Yes, and uh, I've been in uh, print since 1988 and predicting that the remains of life will be found on all solar system bodies for the simple reason that Earth has been so prolific with life for such a long period of time uh, that meteors have struck the Earth in sufficient abundance as to transport Earth's soil to all solar system bodies. In fact, I got an opportunity to speak at NASA Houston a few years back where I said, we really need to target the Moon as opposed to Mars, because on the surface of Mars, we only have about 200 pounds of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers. But on the Moon, it's nearly 20,000 tons. And moreover, unlike Mars, the Moon has had very little geological activity over its history. And when it comes to planet Earth, the fossils of Earth's first life have been destroyed by Earth's geology. We don't have those fossils. All we have is an isotope signature of Earth's first life. But we can literally go to the Moon and recover the fossils of Earth's first life and establish who got it right on the origin of life, the Christians or the atheists. Amazing. So we we find further evidence of of our own um, uh, lifespan here on Earth by going to other planets. Well, I mean, we can recover the fossils of Earth's first life by going to Mars, but uh, there's a good likelihood that they've been damaged beyond recognition. Uh, why I'm opting for the moon is that calculations already show us uh, that the fossils of Earth's first life arrived there 
uh, on low collision velocity uh, trajectories and therefore should be available in pristine form. And uh, the Christian model predicts that those fossils would be equally complex to the simplest life on planet Earth today. The atheists predict it would be orders of magnitude simpler. They also predict one species only, whereas the Christian model would predict that we should see a suite of species uh, with different uh, biochemical uh, metabolic uh, structures set up. We can literally go to the moon and prove who got it right. I mean, you can do the same thing on Mars, but frankly, I don't think instruments like Curiosity have the technical capability to really do the job. We'd have to send something much more sophisticated, whereas going to the moon, it'd be quite easy uh, to recover those fossils and bring them back to Earth for detailed analysis. And that analysis, then, as you're suggesting, Dr. Ross, has the capability, has the capacity of being able to differentiate between what they might would see as uh, particles that relate back to Earth as opposed to particles that are natural to the moon. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, you've got many in NASA saying that life may have originated indigenously on Mars. If that's the case, we expect to see a different signature uh, in those uh, fossils and uh, molecular structure than we see in Earth life. And so it's relatively routine uh, to see whether the creationists or the evolutionists uh, got the origin of life model right by literally going to places like Mars and the Moon. But I'm saying it'd be a lot easier to do on the Moon than to do on Mars. I make reference to uh, the recent conversations coming out of um, the University of California at Berkeley that uh, have kind of underscored some of the research that was done clear back in the early 1960s by Peter Higgs regarding the so-called God particle. Can you comment, uh, Dr. Ross, on the recent uh, information coming out of UC Berkeley on the same? Yes, I think there's a good likelihood that the Higgs boson has been discovered. Uh, to really uh, fine-tune our particle creation models, however, we're going to need a fairly accurate measure of the mass of the Higgs boson. Uh, that still needs to happen. Uh, but the Large Hadron Collider has the capability of, of actually doing that. Let's wait a few more years, and, and then I think we can actually look forward to something much more exciting uh, than the mere discovery. Uh, but if you go to our reasons.org website, I wrote a series of uh, five articles on our feature called Today's New Reason to Believe, and it's about a year ago. Uh, where I talked about two other particles, axions and sterile neutrinos, that in my opinion deserve the title the God particles much more so than the Higgs boson. Uh, the discovery of those two particles, number one, can be done fairly cheaply. In fact, I suggest in the articles I wrote that astronomers probably have already discovered both particles. And with additional measurements, we could actually measure the characteristics of both sterile neutrinos and axions, and uh, that would really uh, bolster the Christian model for the creation of the universe and the creation of the particles. So I'm really anticipating uh, what astrophysics and particle physics in combination can really do uh, to build a much stronger case for a physical creation model. If you've just joined our conversation, we're visiting today with well-known astrophysicist, Christian apologist, and of course the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross. Information, by the way, as he mentioned on the website at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Now, we're going to come back after a brief time out and talk about Dr. Ross's latest book. We typically turn to the book of Genesis. 
for answers considering the origins of man and things of this sort. But how about the notion of turning to one of the oldest books in the Bible to find today's answers for scientific questions? We'll get to that part of our discussion. Best-selling author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, here on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called um, bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, and we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that the because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that? Well, you know, these uh, so-called crippled designs are a great way to test our different creation evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless, and so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion, but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. And likewise, useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no, no purpose or role in the human body, and uh, now we recognize that they too play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more, uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, then that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, then that would be evidence that, uh, that hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now, there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount of... Um, uh, quote, uh, useless function uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth. Because after all, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs. But in the case of the human species, we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of, quote, junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. So perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, 
we would expect that a lot of the desire would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms, namely that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that is exactly played out. Part of this uh, discovery process, you spend some time, uh, some fair amount of time inside the pages of hidden treasures in the book of Job, to the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job. Uh, in our time that remains, a doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us. Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the book of Job, is why do we see this list of ten specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top ten list. And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, but those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and mammal species, and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to, to use them, uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with them. And I think what's really phenomenal, too, is you look at creatures... Uh, you know, like the ostrich uh, or the goat uh, or the donkey or the horse, uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, they are fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech uh, technology. Uh, so goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit. Final word, you spend some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point. Well, uh, what God does is he talks about these animals that he gave to serve and please us and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them, and he mentions the Leviathan and the behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But he says there's one species you're not able to tame, and that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride, and without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with Him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job, the last few chapters close with a clear gospel message 
of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for our salvation, concluding in verse nine, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job recognized his need for a Savior and a Redeemer, and it committed his life to that uh, divine Redeemer. Speaking just deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man, a look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of Job, the new book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, newly published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. Get an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and He has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be, uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what He's done in our life? and how we can change somebody else's life, too? Well, certainly that's the desire. I think a lot of people, when it comes to the matter of, of sharing their faith or evangelism, get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within. Brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg. The book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, are very common questions, to be sure. And one would think quest- questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the, the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with, Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great, but when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is, you know, being taught that this is true your whole life, and, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, yeah, but how do you know? And, you know, you believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's based on myths, it's, you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer. We asked a thousand Christians, you know, what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-Christian? And these are the top 10 questions that came up. So let's get ready because if we feel ready, then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, as you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, there seemed to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions. And I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them. Uh, and then, too, maybe to a level of just simple 
biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in, in, in speaking to some of these questions. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think, uh, again, I think sometimes as churches we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's, let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And, and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they, they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We, we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in, in how should I phrase this, a, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a, a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it it was a a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true, and I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, my my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation. Let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that 
answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones. Which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most? Well, and by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. Not not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here, but... Uh, the the very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top two on the survey, and that is, how do you know God exists? You can't see him, feel him, hear him, you know, he's not a physical being, and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him. Why do you do that? And, you know, I think as Christians, again, a lot of us grew up knowing God, believing in God, experiencing God, worshiping God. It's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true, and yet when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so I addressed that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free. Why don't you do that right now, Mark? Okay, it's, it's thequestionswithanswers.com. Thequestionswithanswers.com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch Him. Let's, let's address that question. How do we know that God exists? If you can't reach out and physically touch Him, and you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff. I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists. Well, it's a great question, and the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, As a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up, but God is very real to me, and uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to talk about, you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them, even, even when he convicts us of being in the wrong or of sin, that is God's activity in our lives. So first thing I say is talk about that openly and boldly because it's real. But if you just stop there, the average non-Christian is going to go, okay, well, that's experience, but I, you know, I need evidence. Well, I give two scientific arguments and then one that's more, maybe a little more philosophical. But uh, the first thing I talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe. And I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is Virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the Big Bang theory, that it, you know, at a point, uh, you know, a finite point in time, there was a huge explosion at which everything that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point. And scientists believe this. 
and and I do too, and I think Genesis one one describes it, but they they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle, and so the universe did have a beginning, but then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this, who created it. One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Now, of course, typically as Christians, we rely on the Scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men. It's wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes. How or why should we trust the Bible? Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front because they've always accepted it. And they're often tempted to just say, well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired, it's the Word of God, it's you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., etc. And I agree with that. I agree with that verse, but that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say, that's just circular reasoning. You're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So what? what first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know, it's so full of contradictions, you can't trust it. I just like to look at them and say, you know, contradictions bother me too, but I'm just curious, what are your top two or three? And I'm telling you, it's usually as silent as what we just experienced. Because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard, and that is that the Bible's full of contradictions, and they haven't even looked into it, they haven't read it for themselves, they have no idea and you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most, they don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I'd like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people, you owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart, it speaks to your deepest needs. But, now, some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two. That's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. When we run into those kind, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and this is what I talk about in the chapter, in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a thousand pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. You said there was a thousand, and you're right too, but in reality there's a lot more than a thousand because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible, 
one gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective. And, you know, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief, initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the Internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data. But as you heard in those two exemplary uh, questions and answers, that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's thequestionswithanswers.com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.